Section 1 of Myths of Babylonia and Assyria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. Myths of Babylonia and Assyria by Donald Alexander Mackenzie. Section 1 Introduction. Ancient Babylonia has made stronger appeal to the imagination of Christendom than even ancient Egypt because of its association with the captivity of the Hebrews, whose sorrows are enshrined in the familiar psalm. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down. Yea, we wept, when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows. In sacred literature proud Babylon became the city of the Antichrist, the symbol of wickedness and cruelty and human vanity. Early Christians who suffered persecution compared their worldly state to that of the oppressed and disconsolate Hebrews, and, like them, they sighed for Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. When St. John the Divine had visions of the ultimate triumph of Christianity, he referred to its enemies, the unbelievers and persecutors, as the citizens of the earthly Babylon, the doom of which he pronounced in stately and memorable phrases. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. The merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, cried Jeremiah, referring to the original Babylon, the earth is moved, and the cry is heard among the nations. It shall be no more inhabited for ever, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. The Christian saint rendered more profound the brooding silence of the desolated city of his vision by voicing memories of its beauty and gaiety and bustling trade. The voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee, for thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all that were slain upon the earth. So for nearly two thousand years has the haunting memory of the once powerful city pervaded Christian literature, while its broken walls and ruined temples and palaces lay buried deep in desert sand. The history of the ancient land of which it was the capital survived in but meagre and fragmentary form, mingled with accumulated myths and legends. A slim volume contained all that could be derived from references in the Old Testament and the compilations of classical writers. It is only within the past half-century that the wonderful story of early Eastern civilization has been gradually pieced together by excavators and linguists, who have thrust open the door of the past and probed the hidden secrets of long ages. We now know more about the land of Babel than did not only the Greeks and Romans, but even the Hebrew writers who foretold its destruction. Glimpses are being afforded us of its life and manners and customs for some thirty centuries before the captives of Judah uttered lamentations on the banks of its reedy canals. The sites of some of the ancient cities of Babylonia and Assyria were identified by European officials and travelers in the east early in the nineteenth century, and a few relics found their way to Europe. But before Sir A. H. Laird set to work as an excavator in the forties, a case scarcely three feet square, as he himself wrote, 
enclosed all that remained not only of the great city of Nineveh, but of Babylon itself. Layard, the distinguished pioneer Assyriologist, was an Englishman of Huguenot descent, who was born in Paris. Through his mother he inherited a strain of Spanish blood. During his early boyhood he resided in Italy, and his education, which began there, was continued in schools in France, Switzerland, and England. He was a man of scholarly habits and fearless and independent character, a charming writer and an accomplished fine art critic. Withal he was a great traveller, a strenuous politician, and an able diplomatist. In 1845, while sojourning in the East, he undertook the exploration of ancient Assyrian cities. He first set to work at Kalki, the biblical Kaila. Three years previously M. P. C. Bota, the French consul at Mosul, had begun to investigate the Nineveh mounds. But these he abandoned for a mound near Khorsabad which proved to be the site of the city erected by Sargon the Later, who is referred to by Isaiah. The relics discovered by Bota and his successor, Victor Place, are preserved in the Louvre. At Kalki and Nineveh, Laird uncovered the palaces of some of the most famous Assyrian emperors, including the biblical Shalmaneser and Esarhaddon, and obtained the colossi, bas-reliefs, and other treasures of antiquity which formed the nucleus of the British Museum's unrivalled Assyrian collection. He also conducted diggings at Babylon and Nifer, Nippur. His work was continued by his assistant, Hormuzd Rassam, a native Christian of Mosul, near Nineveh. Rassam studied for a time at Oxford. The discoveries made by Layard and Boda stimulated others to follow their example. In the fifties, Mr. W. K. Loftus engaged in excavations at Larsa and Eric, where important discoveries were made of ancient buildings, ornaments, tablets, sarcophagus graves, and pot burials, while Mr. J. E. Taylor operated at Ur, the seat of the moon cult and the birthplace of Abraham, and at Eridu, which is generally regarded as the cradle of early Babylonian, Sumerian civilization. In 1854, Sir Henry Rawlinson superintended diggings at Burs Nimrud, Borsippa, near Babylon, and excavated relics of the biblical Nebuchadrezzar. This notable archaeologist began his career in the east as an officer in the Bombay army. He distinguished himself as a political agent and diplomatist. While resident at Baghdad, he devoted his leisure time to cuneiform studies. One of his remarkable feats was the copying of the famous trilingual rock inscription of Darius the Great on a mountain cliff at Behistun, in Persian Kurdistan. This work was carried out at great personal risk, for the cliff is 1,700 feet high, and the sculptures and inscriptions are situated about 300 feet from the ground. Darius was the first monarch of his line to make use of the Persian cuneiform script, which in this case he utilized in conjunction with the older and more complicated Assyrio-Babylonian alphabetic and syllabic characters to record a portion of the history of his reign. Rawlinson's translation of the famous inscription was an important contribution towards the decipherment of the cuneiform writings of Assyria and Babylonia. Twelve years of brilliant Mesopotamian discovery concluded in 1854, and further excavations had to be suspended until the 70s, on account of the unsettled political conditions of the ancient land and the difficulties experienced in dealing with Turkish officials. During the interval, however, archaeologists and philologists were kept fully engaged, studying the large amount of material which had been accumulated. Sir Henry Rawlinson began the issue of his monumental work, The Cuneiform Inscriptions of Western Asia, on behalf of the British Museum. 
goodspeed refers to the early archaeological work as the heroic period of research and says that the modern scientific period began with mr george smith's expedition to nineveh in eighteen seventy three george smith like henry schliemann the pioneer investigator of pre-hellenic culture was a self-educated man of humble origin he was born at chelsea in eighteen forty at fourteen he was apprenticed to an engraver he was a youth of studious habits and great originality and interested himself intensely in the discoveries which had been made by layard and other explorers at the british museum which he visited regularly to pore over the assyrian inscriptions he attracted the attention of sir henry rawlinson so greatly impressed was sir henry by the young man's enthusiasm and remarkable intelligence that he allowed him the use of his private room and provided casts and squeezes of inscriptions to assist him in his studies smith made rapid progress his earliest discovery was the date of the payment of tribute by jehu king of israel to the assyrian emperor shalmaneser sir henry availed himself of the young investigator's assistance in producing the third volume of the cuneiform inscriptions in eighteen sixty seven smith received an appointment in the assyriology department of the british museum and a few years later became famous throughout christendom as the translator of fragments of the babylonian deluge legend from tablets sent to london by rossum sir edwin arnold the poet and orientalist was at the time editor of the daily telegraph and performed a memorable service to modern scholarship by dispatching smith on behalf of his paper to nineveh to search for other fragments of the ancient babylonian epic rossum had obtained the tablets from the great library of the cultured emperor ashurbani pal the great and noble asnapper of the bible who took delight as he himself recorded in the wisdom of ea the art of song the treasures of science this royal patron of learning included in his library collection copies and translations of tablets from babylonia some of these were then over two thousand years old the babylonian literary relics were indeed of as great antiquity to ashurbanipal as that monarch's relics are to us the emperor invoked nebo god of wisdom and learning to bless his books praying forever o nebo king of all heaven and earth look gladly upon this library of ashurbanipal his thy shepherd reverencer of thy divinity mr george smith's expedition to nineveh in eighteen seventy three was exceedingly fruitful of results more tablets were discovered and translated in the following year he returned to the ancient assyrian city on behalf of the british museum and added further by his scholarly achievements to his own reputation and the world's knowledge of antiquity his last expedition was made early in eighteen seventy six on his homeward journey he was stricken down with fever and on nineteenth august he died at aleppo in his thirty-sixth year so was a brilliant career brought to an untimely end rossum was engaged to continue smith's great work and between eighteen seventy seven and eighteen eighty two made many notable discoveries in assyria and babylonia including the bronze doors of the shalmaneser temple the sun temple at sippar the palace of the biblical nebuchadrezzar who was famous for its hanging gardens a cylinder of nabonidus king of babylon and about fifty thousand tablets m de sarsec the french consul at bassara began in eighteen seventy seven excavations at the ancient sumerian city of lagash sherpala and continued them until nineteen hundred he found thousands of tablets many have reliefs votive statuettes which worshippers apparently pinned on sacred shrines the famous silver vase of king entemena statues of king gudea 
and various other treasures which are now in the Louvre. The pioneer work achieved by British and French excavators stimulated interest all over the world. An expedition was sent out from the United States by the University of Pennsylvania and began to operate at Nippur in 1888. The Germans, who have displayed great activity in the domain of philological research, are at present represented by an exploring party which is conducting the systematic exploration of the ruins of Babylon. Even the Turkish government has encouraged research work and its excavators have accumulated a fine collection of antiquities at Constantinople. Among the archaeologists and linguists of various nationalities who are devoting themselves to the study of ancient Assyrian and Babylonian records and literature, and gradually unfolding the story of ancient Eastern civilizations, those of our own country occupy a prominent position. One of the most interesting discoveries of recent years has been new fragments of the creation legend by L. W. King of the British Museum whose scholarly work, The Seven Tablets of Creation, is the standard work on the subject. The archaeological work conducted in Persia, Asia Minor, Palestine, Cyprus, Crete, the Aegean, and Egypt has thrown, and is throwing, much light on the relations between the various civilizations of antiquity. In addition to the Hittite discoveries, with which the name of Professor Sais will ever be associated as a pioneer, we now hear much of the hitherto unknown civilizations of Mitanni and Eratu, ancient Armenia, which contributed to the shaping of ancient history. The biblical narratives of the rise and decline of the Hebrew kingdoms have also been greatly elucidated. In this volume, which deals mainly with the intellectual life of the Mesopotamian peoples, a historical narrative has been provided as an appropriate setting for the myths and legends. In this connection the reader must be reminded that the chronology of the early period is still uncertain. The approximate dates which are given, however, are those now generally adopted by most European and American authorities. Early Babylonian history of the Sumerian period begins some time prior to 3000 BC. Sargon of Akkad flourished about 2650 BC, and Hammurabi not long before or after 2000 BC. The inflated system of dating which places Mena of Egypt as far back as 5,500 B.C. and Sargon at about 3,800 B.C. has been abandoned by the majority of prominent archaeologists, the exceptions including Professor Flinders Petrie. Recent discoveries appear to support the new chronological system. There is a growing conviction, writes Mr. Hawes, that Cretan evidence, especially in the eastern part of the island, favors the minimum Berlin system of Egyptian chronology according to which the sixth Egyptian dynasty began at circa 2540 BC and the twelfth at circa 2000 BC. Petri dates the beginning of the twelfth dynasty at circa 3400 BC. To students of comparative folklore and mythology, the myths and legends of Babylonia present many features of engrossing interest. They are of great antiquity, yet not a few seem curiously familiar. We must not conclude, however, that because a European legend may bear resemblances to one translated from a cuneiform tablet, it is necessarily of Babylonian origin. Certain beliefs, and the myths which were based upon them, are older than even the civilization of the Tigro-Euphrates valley. They belong, it would appear, to a stock of common inheritance from an uncertain cultural center of immense antiquity. The problem involved has been referred to by Professor Fraser in The Golden Bough. Commenting on the similarities presented by certain ancient festivals in various countries, he suggests that they may be due to a remarkable homogeneity of civilization throughout southern Europe and western Asia in prehistoric times. How far, he adds, such homogeneity of civilization may be taken as evidence of homogeneity of race, 
is a question for the ethnologist. In chapter 1 the reader is introduced to the ethnological problem, and it is shown that the results of modern research tend to establish a remote racial connection between the Sumerians of Babylonia, the prehistoric Egyptians, and the Neolithic Late Stone Age inhabitants of Europe, as well as the southern Persians and the Aryans of India. Comparative notes are provided in dealing with the customs, religious beliefs, and myths and legends of the Mesopotamian peoples, to assist the student towards the elucidation and partial restoration of certain literary fragments from the cuneiform tablets. Of special interest in this connection are the resemblances between some of the Indian and Babylonian myths. The writer has drawn upon that great storehouse of ancient legends, the voluminous Indian epic, the Mahabharata, and it is shown that there are undoubted links between the Garuda eagle myths and those of the Sumerian Zubird and the Atana eagle, while similar stories remain attached to the memories of Sargon of Akkad and the Indian hero Karna, and of Semiramis, who was Queen Samuramat of Assyria and Shakuntala. The Indian god Varuna and the Sumerian Ea are also found to have much in common, and it seems undoubted that the Manu fish and flood myth is a direct Babylonian inheritance, like the Yuga, Ages of the Universe doctrine, and the system of calculation associated with it. It is of interest to note, too, that a portion of the Gilgamesh epic survives in the Ramayana story of the monkey god Hanuman's search for the lost princess Sita. Other relics of similar character suggest that both the Gilgamesh and Hanuman narratives are derived in part from a very ancient myth. Gilgamesh also features in Indian mythology as Yama, the first man, who explored the way to the paradise called the Land of Ancestors, and over which he subsequently presided as a god. Other Babylonian myths link with those found in Egypt, Greece, Scandinavia, Iceland, and the British Isles and Ireland. The Sargon myth, for instance, resembles closely the myth of Silid, Sif, the patriarch in the Beowulf epic, and both appear to be variations of the Tammuz Adanus story. Tammuz also resembles in one of his phases the Celtic hero Diarmid, who was slain by the green boar of the Earth Mother, as was Adonis by the boar form of Ares, the Greek war god. In approaching the study of these linking myths, it would be as rash to conclude that all resemblances are due to homogeneity of race as to assume that folklore and mythology are devoid of ethnological elements. Due consideration must be given to the widespread influence exercised by cultural contact. We must recognize also that the human mind has ever shown a tendency to arrive quite independently at similar conclusions, when confronted by similar problems in various parts of the world. But while many remarkable resemblances may be detected between the beliefs and myths and customs of widely separated peoples, it cannot be overlooked that pronounced and striking differences remain to be accounted for. Human experiences varied in localities because all sections of humanity were not confronted in ancient times by the same problems in their everyday lives. Some peoples, for instance, experienced no great difficulties regarding the food supply, which might be provided for them by nature in lavish abundance. Others were compelled to wage a fierce and constant conflict against hostile forces in inhospitable environments, with purpose to secure adequate sustenance and their meed of enjoyment. Various habits of life had to be adopted in various parts of the world, and these produced various habits of thought. Consequently, we find that behind all systems of primitive religion lies the formative background of natural phenomena. A mythology reflects the geography, the fauna and flora, and the climatic conditions of the area in which it took definite and permanent shape. 
in babylonia as elsewhere we expect therefore to find a mythology which has strictly local characteristics one which mirrors river and valley scenery the habits of life of the people and also the various stages of progress in the civilization from its earliest beginnings traces of primitive thought survivals from remotest antiquity should also remain in evidence as a matter of fact babylonian mythology fulfils our expectations in this regard to the highest degree herodotus said that egypt was the gift of the nile similarly babylonia may be regarded as the gift of the tigris and euphrates those great shifting and flooding rivers which for long ages had been carrying down from the armenian highlands vast quantities of mud to thrust back the waters of the persian gulf and form a country capable of being utilized for human habitation the most typical babylonian deity was ea the god of the fertilizing and creative waters he was depicted clad in the skin of a fish as gods in other geographical areas were depicted wearing the skins of animals which were regarded as ancestors or hostile demons that had to be propitiated originally ea appears to have been a fish the incarnation of the spirit of or life principle in the euphrates river his centre of worship was at eridu an ancient seaport where apparently the prehistoric babylonians the sumerians first began to utilize the dried-up beds of shifting streams to irrigate the soil one of the several creation myths is reminiscent of those early experiences which produced early local beliefs o thou river who didst create all things when the great gods dug thee out they set prosperity upon thy banks within thee ea the king of the deep created his dwelling the sumerians observed that the land was brought into existence by means of the obstructing reeds which caused mud to accumulate when their minds began to be exercised regarding the origin of life they conceived that the first human beings were created by a similar process marduk son of ea laid a reed upon the face of the waters he formed dust and poured it out beside the reed he formed mankind ea acquired in time as a divine artisan various attributes which reflected the gradual growth of civilization he was reputed to have taught the people how to form canals control the rivers cultivate the fields build their houses and so on but although ea became a beneficent deity as a result of the growth of civilization he had also a demonic form and had to be propitiated the worshippers of the fish god retained ancient modes of thought and perpetuated ancient superstitious practices the earliest settlers in the tigro euphrates valley were agriculturalists like their congeners the prototype egyptians and the neolithic europeans before they broke away from the parent stock in its area of characterization they had acquired the elements of culture and adopted habits of thought which were based on the agricultural mode of life like other agricultural communities they were worshippers of the world mother the creatrix who was the giver of all good things the preserver and also the destroyer the goddess whose moods were reflected by natural phenomena and whose lovers were the spirits of the seasons in the alluvial valley which they rendered fit for habitation the sumerians came into contact with peoples of different habits of life and different habits of thought these were the nomadic pastoralists from the northern steppelands who had developed in isolation theories regarding the origin of the universe which reflected their particular experiences and the natural phenomena of their area of characterization the most representative people of this class were the hatti of asia minor who were of alpine or arminoid stock in early times the nomads were broken up into small tribal units like abraham and his followers and depended for their food supply on the prowess of the males their chief deity was the sky and mountain god who was the world father the creator and the wielder of the thunder hammer 
who waged war against the demons of storm or drought and ensured the food supply of his worshippers the fusion in babylonia of the peoples of the god and goddess cults was in progress before the dawn of history as was the case in egypt and also in southern europe in consequence independent pantheons came into existence in the various city-states in the tigro euphrates valley these were mainly a reflection of city politics the deities of each influential section had to receive recognition but among the great masses of the people ancient customs associated with agriculture continued in practice and as babylonia depended for its prosperity on its harvests the force of public opinion tended it would appear to perpetuate the religious beliefs of the earliest settlers despite the efforts made by conquerors to exalt the deities they introduced babylonian religion was of twofold character it embraced temple worship and private worship the religion of the temple was the religion of the ruling class and especially of the king who was the guardian of the people domestic religion was conducted in homes in reed huts or in public places and conserved the crudest superstitions surviving from the earliest times the great burnings and the human sacrifices in babylonia referred to in the bible were no doubt connected with agricultural religion of the private order as was also the ceremony of baking and offering cakes to the queen of heaven condemned by jeremiah which obtained in the streets of jerusalem and other cities domestic religion required no temples there were no temples in crete the world was the house of the deity who had seasonal haunts on hilltops in groves in caves etc in egypt herodotus witnessed festivals and processions which are not referred to in official inscriptions although they were evidently practised from the earliest times agricultural religion in egypt was concentrated in the cult of osiris and isis and influenced all local theologies in babylonia these deities represented by tammuz and ishtar ishtar like isis observed many other local goddesses according to the beliefs of the ancient agriculturists the goddess was eternal and undecaying she was the great mother of the universe and the source of the food supply her son the corn god became as the egyptians put it husband of his mother each year he was born anew and rapidly attained to manhood then he was slain by a fierce rival who symbolized the season of pestilence bringing and parching sun heat or the rain season or wild beasts of prey or it might be that he was slain by his son as Cronos was by zeus and dias by indra the new year slew the old the social customs of the people which had a religious basis were formed in accordance with the doings of the deities they sorrowed or made glad in sympathy with the spirits of nature worshippers also suggested by their ceremonies how the deities should act at various seasons and thus exercised as they believed a magical control over them in babylonia the agricultural myth regarding the mother goddess and the young god had many variations in one form tammuz like adonis was loved by two goddesses the twin phases of nature the queen of heaven and the queen of hades it was decreed that tammuz should spend part of the year with one goddess and part of the year with the other tammuz was also a patriarch who reigned for a long period over the land and had human offspring after death his spirit appeared at certain times and seasons as a planet star or constellation he was a ghost of the elder god and he was also the younger god who was born each year in the gilgamesh epic we appear to have a form of the patriarch legend the story of the culture hero and teacher who discovered the path which led to the land of ancestral spirits the heroic patriarch in egypt was apuatu the opener of the ways the earliest form of osiris in india he was yama the first man who searched and found out the path for many 
the king as patriarch was regarded during life as an incarnation of the culture god after death he merged in the god sargon of akkad posed as an incarnation of the ancient agricultural patriarch he professed to be a man of miraculous birth who was loved by the goddess ishtar and was supposed to have inaugurated a new age of the universe the myth regarding the father who was superseded by his son may account for the existence in babylonian city pantheons of elder and younger gods who symbolized the passive and active forces of nature considering the persistent and cumulative influence exercised by agricultural religion it is not surprising to find as has been indicated that most of the babylonian gods had tammuz traits as most of the egyptian gods had osirian traits although local or imported deities were developed and conventionalized in rival babylonian cities they still retained traces of primitive conceptions they existed in all their forms as the younger god who displaced the elder god and became the elder god and as the elder god who conciliated the younger god and made him his active agent and as the god who was identified at various seasons with different heavenly bodies and natural phenomena merodach the god of babylon who was exalted as chief of the national pantheon in the hammurabi age was like tammuz a son and therefore a form of ea a demon slayer a war god a god of fertility a corn spirit a patriarch and world ruler and guardian and like tammuz he had solar lunar astral and atmospheric attributes the complex characters of merodach and tammuz were not due solely to the monotheistic tendency the oldest deities were of mystical character they represented the self-power of naturalism as well as the spirit groups of animism the theorizing priests who speculated regarding the mysteries of life and death and the origin of all things had to address the people through the medium of popular beliefs they utilized floating myths for this purpose as there were in early times various centers of culture which had rival pantheons the adapted myths varied greatly in the different forms in which they survive to us they reflect not only aspects of local beliefs but also grades of culture at different periods we must not expect however to find that the latest form of a myth was the highest and most profound the history of babylonian religion is divided into periods of growth and periods of decadence the influence of domestic religion was invariably opposed to the new and high doctrines which emanated from the priesthood and in times of political upheaval tended to submerge them in the debris of immemorial beliefs and customs the retrogressive tendencies of masses were invariably reinforced by periodic invasions of aliens who had no respect for official deities and temple creeds we must avoid insisting too strongly on the application of the evolution theory to the religious phenomena of a country like babylonia the epochs in the intellectual life of an ancient people are not comparable to geological epochs for instance because the forces at work were directed by human wills whether in the interests of progress or otherwise the battle of creeds has ever been a battle of minds it should be recognized therefore that the human element bulks as prominently in the drama of babylon's religious history as is the prince of denmark in the play of hamlet we are not concerned with the plot alone the characters must also receive attention their aspirations and triumphs their prejudices and blunders were the billowy forces which shaped the shoreland of the story and made history various aspects of babylonian life and culture are dealt with throughout this volume and it is shown that the growth of science and art was stimulated by unwholesome and crude superstitions many rank weeds flourished beside the brightest blossoms of the human intellect that wooed the sun in that fertile valley of rivers as in egypt civilization made progress when wealth was accumulated in sufficient abundance to permit of a leisured class devoting time to study and research 
the endowed priests who performed temple ceremonies were the teachers of the people and the patrons of culture we may think little of their religious beliefs regarding which after all we have only a superficial knowledge for we have yet discovered little more than the fragments of the shell which held the pearl the faded petals that were once a rose but we must recognize that they provided inspiration for the artists and sculptors whose achievements compel our wonder and admiration moved statesmen to inaugurate and administer humanitarian laws and exalted right above might these civilizations of the old world among which the mesopotamian and the nilotic were the earliest were built on no unsound foundations they made possible the glory that was greece and the grandeur that was rome and it is only within recent years that we have begun to realize how incalculable is the debt which the modern world owes to them end of section one